So I've always had like love and respect for the Bay, bro. And music wise, come on, short and 40, that just goes without saying. But then when you're talking about real originators, I was just about to say <laughs> my my personal favorite is is Mac J because that's everything that we stand for. That's everything that that we that the culture is about, bro. It's one of a kind of originality with true bona fide uh, lyricism and 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 ear for fucking a party fucking song and a vibe that you're giving out. It's see the thing is that a lot of people get fucked up. Uh, Especially when you're coming from like a background of like either like can I see the lighter please baby, um, you know freestyling or battling in uh, acapella style or whatever it's like, bro. Music is music is not about words, bro. Music is about feelings, like period. You're using words in conjunction with rhythms and music and and instruments to to conduct a feeling. That's at least how I look at it and. So it's it's almost it almost seems you know counterintuitive because I so I'm I'm such a student of and and so intentionally say every single thing that I say, but at the same time, the only reason I do that is is to create the vibe. It's not about the words. It's all these rhyme schemes, the alliteration, all these all these things are tools that I'm using to create the feeling. It's not about the words. Like I don't ever separate words from the beat. There's, there's no beat and words in my songs. You know what I'm saying? There's songs. Niggas don't say, "Hey, kick that Jimi Hendrix verse." How does it go? Hmm. And niggas just bust the verse. No. That's a good point. That's, like, because that's not, it's music. It's music. You can't really separate it. Yeah, the words are tight, and yeah, the instrumental stuff, but how the fuck you take it away from each other? Right. It's, it's supposed to be one. And so I think a lot of people have the tendency to forget that part, especially when they come from a background of, of just of, of word-dominant uh, rapping or or whatever it's like yeah bro but the words are just the words are just one piece in that fucking puzzle they need to just be the words aren't by themselves like you know what i'm saying so um uh, uh, one of those people oh sorry but no no go ahead oh no i just wanted to say before we kept going forward because you said the whole thing about the songs and like having it be you know there's not words in a beat it's all together to make the song do you feel like you know the rappers that are like they're try to they try to be kind of too technical yeah. and stick like too hard to like a, a rhyme scheme and too up above kind of with lyrics wise where it's like very compound words a lot of syllables and things like that. Do you feel like that kind of stops them from creating that and that's the thing that separates like somebody like an Eminem I from personally- that person? I personally, I mean, all I can say about it is I don't really listen to it. You know what I mean? Because there's better feeling shit to listen to. Yeah. And like real, real quick, the, a perfect yeah. example of it. You know, uh, you know who Dax is? Yeah. I feel like he's a perfect example of that because he's a really good rapper. Like he's a good lyricist, but his music sometimes, like I'll turn yeah. it on. 
listen to it. And I'm like, yo, this is just too much right now. It's just like attacking the shit out of your ears. To me, it's like Eminem now. It's like, it's like there's a clear separation in the words and the music. So, yes. so Fair. sharp, so, Fair. so sharply clear. There's a fucking chasm between the words and the music. It's words on the music. Like, see, I don't even create like that. People don't, like, you can't send me a beat and then I just rap on it. Like, that's not how that works. If, if we're working over the internet, nigga, your beat's going to come back with shit changed, maybe some shit added, maybe the, the, the beginning is fucking flipped and fucking revert. Like, it's going to be a thing because I, I need access to all pieces of the fucking puzzle. Like, I can't, I'm not just painting on top of something. Like, I'm, it's inside of it. You know what I mean? It has to be one. And that was, that was what I was saying. It's like, Mac Dre, listen to the Bay sound. Listen to what you now call the, L, the new LA sound, quote unquote, which is really a little more hyper version of an old hyphy sound with a little hey. more instruments. It's real. That was just created, not solely by, but very popularized by Mac Dre. You guys might that's that's so weird because to me like the five through eight is like the best season. Best season. So like it's wild that that would be the lowest like the ratings aren't that good, but it actually might have like what's the turning point? Why do you think how old how old were you when those seasons were on? Uh four. Maybe six. (laughs) See that's the thing. Eighteen to thirty four was not eighteen the T V only cares about eighteen to thirty four and eighteen to forty nine. Okay, so the show was getting these ratings. We get a, we get ninety percent of everybody under eighteen, but we'd only get eleven percent of people eighteen to forty nine, and those people, all those people, would all be watching Mad About You, or mm. you know, or sixty minutes football football overrun or whatever. So that's the thing. Like they didn't care. Nobody cared that people under eighteen were loving the show. On when it was so broadcast. the fans wow. that ended up growing up finally got to the age where they right, cared right. and then the ratings wow that's really interesting all sure. right. i should also say you guys don't remember you're all sure you don't remember grown-ups really did not like animation back then and like this is the thing that is absolutely it's mind-boggling today the simpsons was the other than the brief appearance of wait till your father gets home in the 70s the simpsons was the only primetime animated show since the flintstones the mm-hmm. only one yeah and people thought that and I'm not, not talking about 90% of people thought that cartoons were for kids because they were every cartoon that had ever been made, except for two or three, you know, mm-hmm. theatrical films by, um, you know, like Fritz the cat were made for kids. So when the Simpsons came on, everybody thought it was for kids and they were shocked because it, the Bart said, eat my shorts. And it's like, Hey, we can't show that to kids. And, yeah. and everyone was really alarmed about it. So, but even through the time that we worked on The Simpsons and long into the early 2000s, you'd always run into people who say, I don't watch cartoons. Cartoons are for kids. And they would say it to you, even though you worked on The Simpsons, you'd be <laughs> shocked. It's like, you see Simpsons, oh yeah, no, I don't watch cartoons. That's for kids. And you'd be like, damn, you know, this show is pretty respected. <laughs> but mm-hmm. anyway, so that was the attitude of people. And it, honestly, until like their King of the Hill and South Park, when those two came on, that was when this thing started to crumble. This prejudice against cartoons, and then people who obviously grew up with that don't have this, don't have that prejudice. But you know, I suspect that people, most people over fifty, probably still feel that way. 
One one of my well, my favorite episode of all time is Homer's Enemy with Frank Grimes. So I have to Thank throw you. it out there. But like that uh, was not that popular at the time either. Uh, it's that was it's the funniest episode. That's like uh, uh, you could ask Dan up here during quarantine. He actually texted me, "Give me ten Simpsons episodes to watch." Literally, almost all of them you were either a writer or showrunner on. So so like Thank it you, yeah. So like Frank Grimes is my favorite episode, and I want to ask about like this specificness of the writing how it works so in the one scene frank ryan comes in where he comes into homer's house and he's just exhausted and he's like all i got to show for it is this briefcase and his haircut two of the most unique things to write in but they work so like why how many things do you throw out there before you decide on briefcase and haircut because if you would have just said these shoes and these glasses it's not as funny but like yeah. they're so specific with briefcase <laughs> and haircut and then you live on top of a bowling alley below another bowling alley like <laughs> how does it work I, like that you know that's i i i'm not sure but i'd be willing to bet money that that's just schwarzwelder that's that was i bet it was all in his first draft that was not pitched out. Like I remember the way that this that episode worked was it was my idea. Actually, I'll take some credit here. It was my idea to have Homer have an enemy. Yeah. Uh, I was like, because we we're often just going through like, what's what's regular stuff that regular shows do? Well, uh, Smithers, like that was what Homer the Smithers was one like that. We were like, I can't believe somebody hasn't already, we didn't already do this idea right. where Homer replaces Smithers. She was very right. obvious. And then we were like, what's another thing that regular, you know, comic strips, movies do? Well, someone has an enemy. What's the enemy like? The enemy is different than him. It has a different outlook. Okay, and that was my that was my contribution to that. And then we got Schwarzwelder in, and Schwarzwelder gave it his demented touch that only he could provide. He wrote the first. I think we just said we just kind of pitched it out, and we said here's the general arc of the thing. We spent several hours as we always did, and then he um he wrote it. And my guess is that those lines you're quoting just came from him. I mean, like his right. brain doesn't work like anyone else's, and he that's one of the that's why he was so valuable at the Simpsons. Well, the one one you specifically wrote, you wrote the Skinner and Seymour. You wrote the Skinner and Chalmers scene in the yeah, Steve Hams. Yeah. Okay. Aurora <laughs> Borealis. Where the hell did that come from? Like, how did you think that? Seems like an obvious lie. Like something's bright. <laughs> it's bright. Like this. That whole thing was like it just kind of flowed out of me because it was. I was just like, okay, well, what's the next lie? Like you just got to be in Skinner's head. Like, well, it's, he's more and more desperate, and he just keeps the lies grow more and more preposterous. So what's something that's bright? I don't think that took very much thinking. It's like, there's something bright in the other room. What could it be? What's a bad lie about it? Well, it's the Aurora Borealis. And it's, for some reason, it's gotten, it's one of the most famous things having to do with the Aurora Borealis these days. <laughs> it's amazing. So were there like any like jokes that you wrote that didn't take off or still haven't taken off that you still think is like one of like the best things that you wrote? You know, a lot of them have come over time. A lot of them have, have finally gotten their due. Like, you guys, I, just to reiterate, most of this stuff was not that popular yeah. <laughs> until the past 10 years. Like, I never heard anything about the steamed ham sketch until five years ago when it suddenly became this insanely popular meme due to people in Australia calling the grocery store and asking for steamed hams. And then it took off from there. But, like, it, it, it like most of this stuff was not that – People didn't really like the Franks. Like, I remember Frank Grimes. We were like, people are going to love this. <laughs> and then nothing. We got, the only thing we got, we got one letter from a guy who was in the army who said, you've totally captured what it's like to be in the army. Like, people are so stupid and no one will listen. And we, we put up on the wall with a thumbtack and we're like, there. There's one guy who likes Frank Grimes who got it. <laughs> it's trial by error. But at the same time, Using okay, if he's in a hole, he can't turn around to get me with the other hand. He can only, so if I grab the claw, he can't bite me. 
you know, that, that kind of, I got the corner. So it's a lot of uh, trial by error. Like if you're going to jump an alligator, okay, I don't want to get bit by this alligator. I want to jump on him. This is later on in high school. So I was, the idea is, okay, grab the alligator by the shoulders, keep his mouth away from you, and then somehow or another end up grabbing his jaw and trying to shut it and hold on to his jaw shut and hold on to the alligator at the same time, trying to hand catch something that at the same time can kill you. And he, he said later on in high school, I wouldn't do that shit right now. Yeah, like, that's, like, so incredible. Manny, I couldn't even do algebra in high school. Yeah. You're sitting here getting bit by rattlesnakes and yeah. stuff. Like, crazy. Well, yeah, we're pre-handling a snake, you know, a pygmy rattlesnake, and I got bit by that. Later on, I got bit by a western diamondback, and that one lo uh, lost a finger to that one. Jeez. But it is like, okay, I, I remember seeing in movies where you grab the snake by the neck mm -hmm. to keep, you know, once I grabbed that, I found out that the jaws come unhinged and those fangs pop out and they can reach around and get you many different really? ways. It was more to it than that. And, uh, and also, I learned how to catch fish by hand, all kinds of uh, tactical things like that. Uh, so it wasn't like you had any, like, formal training into any of this stuff. It's like you just literally just, like, all instinct on your part. Trained yourself. Uh, it's, um, I remember, you know, okay, I'm going to hold a flashlight on the alligator. Somebody's going to hold, and I come, I'm going to come running and jump on it. So he's, well, he's got the lighting down on him. He doesn't see me coming. I land on the alligator and try to grab him any wish where I can and try to keep from getting bit by him at the same time. It, it started there, but even from there, I went to like, okay, uh, spear fishing and then hand feeding sharks, riding sharks. I was doing that, uh, 25 years ago. And feeding the sharks and riding them and all that stuff. So I learned, uh, well, if I hold the food this way, make sure he doesn't get my hand inside his mouth, but angle it to the side a little bit and how to attract them and, you know, learning how to read when the shark's going to take the bite, the way he dips. And normally it takes a long time to draw the shark in that close. So he builds up his confidence to so eat from your hand. There's a wild animal's never been hand fed before. Usually back then they didn't have shark feeding stations where I was. Let's put it this way. Mm all uh, different and it's tactical a lot of tactical thing and I always say well it's a gift of God I told mm -hmm. it to her that's as simple as that I, um, I, I uh, they're God's creatures so I always want to have a good with God because those creatures can kill you at any time you're, you're from Cuba right you came over yes. uh, at four, four years old I read yeah that's where I started in Cuba with hand, hand catching the land crabs I was in Cuba Nice. There are no venomous snakes in Cuba, so I got into that over here. There are crocodiles, but I didn't get my hands on crocodiles in Cuba. I ended up over here doing it. Think about how like like that sounds. There was no venomous snakes in Cuba, so I decided to pick the hobby up in America. <laughs> I love it, man. <laughs> I, I have to ask you, uh, Wayne. I remember um the the trick you did. I'll never forget at the graduation party. You had a card with a name written on it, and somehow, maybe I imagine this, somehow no. you had it, it was in my dad's wallet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're laughing. How does that happen? He's like, <laughs> yeah, I did that. How does that, you literally, Eric, this guy, because Eric wasn't at the party, he wrote his name on a fucking like seven of clubs and goes, oh, where is it? Ray, check your wallet. My dad checked his wallet and oh, the card was in there. How is that possible? What's weird is, it's, you're, you've just totally brought that up. What's weird yeah. is, 
I actually have something in my wallet right now that you might find interesting. It's my it's license? Like your, it's your dad's wallet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's your dad's wallet. No. The, my dad would be like, give that the fuck back. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to try something um, since Go you brought it. it up. Yep. Um, weird question, okay? Um, and I'm going to keep this here. Test, test Eric, because Eric's never really uh, – Eric wasn't around for yeah. my graduation party. Go I'm, with a, I'm a big believer in fate, so, so we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, okay. let, we'll get Eric involved here. I think everything happens uh, for a reason. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to keep this here. If you, let me ask you a quick question, Eric, before yeah. I even do anything. If you were to go on a free vacation somewhere, all expenses paid, oh. go anywhere you want, what, tell us out loud, where would you go if you could go anywhere in the world? Free COVID, Italy. All right, imagine you're in Italy, right? You go into a hotel. What's your imaginary hotel room number in Italy? Make it up and tell us. Tell you right now? Yep. I know what it is. 17. Okay, is that your lucky number? Yeah. I had a feeling. Uh, and you, 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 know, you were able to, to, to guess it as well. Remember the wallet that I told you about? Here, look, uh, here, well, I'll show you. Okay, good, my, 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 my manager's on it. Hector! Where, okay, what camera, this camera? Cool, look. No, it's not. No, it's not. Behind my driver's license, no. I don't want to flash my uh, thing. There, uh, my, <laughs> I don't want anyone knowing my address. <laughs> in here, in, in the plastic behind my driver's license, no. I have this post-it note, right? No. And I put this in my wallet earlier as a prediction. Can't deal with this. Check this out. No! I have two things written on here. It says, it says Italy, 17. I can't Italia, do it. Italia 17. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, man. That is so fucking amazing. Eric, how is that? And he disappeared. He, he, yeah. Eric, through 59. Like, this is crazy. All right. I have to say, this isn't even pre recorded. This is legit. How did. I know you'll never reveal it, but, like, Eric, do you have. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's the second beer that got to me or this is real. Life, but I'm a fan. My birthday's coming up soon. I'm gonna call you. When like you ventured into that, like, how did you, how did your parents react when you wanted to do drums as opposed to like not going to school or doing sports? My mom was into it and honestly yeah. pushed it. You know, like, like some of my early bands and stuff. My mom was like loading drums into her Ford Tempo and taking me to the shows. Um, when I started doing shows, you know, I needed to put my, like my house number on the flyers to give directions. And the day of the show, my mom would sit by the phone and I'd give her all points directions to the Manville Elks and she would sit on the phone and take calls. So she was like nice. down for it and supportive awesome. uh, for sure. Um, almost probably pushed me into it. My father's whole thing was kind of like, you do what you do, but whatever you're going to do, you go like balls out, you know, and you see things through to the end and you be disciplined. That's kind of his vibe. So I think at first, you know, he was okay to let me explore. I mean, honestly, at the time I was making these decisions, I wasn't listening. My family was split and I wasn't really listening to what pops had to say at that time anyway. Um, but it did get to a point maybe in like my, you know, 23, 24, where I was still kind of at this and nothing was really like clicking yet, you know, on a, on a bigger level 
mm-hmm. that I think, you know, he was starting to get like, yo, like, you know, maybe yeah. time for a change, you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So there was definitely a couple, there was some hairy years there, especially before Gasly. I mean, I didn't even meet Brian until I was 26. Um, and, you know, and, you know, we quickly, you know, things went quickly, but there was a few years there, like right before Gasly, where if you asked me, I would have said, this is my last band. Like, this is my last go at it. And like, wow. and if this doesn't work, I'm going to like, I got to try something else. You know so, what I mean? Like, we money was a problem. I didn't come from money. So right. I, this whole time we're talking about, you know, I'm scratching by like, and, and I was getting sick of that. I was getting sick of just like, straight up scratching by like you know yeah i, I just I, I wanted a little more like steadiness in my life at that but, but like you embody and I, I mean i mentioned this a lot on the show man every one of the everyone we talk to whether it's these battle rappers these photographers these uh artists uh, djs you're all you all have like similar stories and it's like and i know i sound like a broken record it, it, it is extremely motivating to like see how much shit you have to put in because like, there's so many people who, yeah. who we know, even Brian, you know, like think that the opportunity is going to knock on their fucking door and yeah. it don't work like that. Yeah. But Brian and I put out mixtapes 12 years ago. And like, there was times we were down in the dumps, like we're done. And like this here, what you're yeah. on is like our last hurrah. Right. You know what I mean? And it's, yeah. it, we're 33, 34. And it just, finally we're kicking it up a notch so like it, it you saying like you got to a point like i feel you on that i know brian feels you on that so it's mm-hmm. like it, it is extremely relatable and it's the awesome. fact that you kept going with it it's extremely i mean like i envy i envy it man i really do i mean well i mean it, there's like this weird fine line right between uh what's being driven and what's being obsessive mm-hmm. you know because you, you also have to have some sense. You know, there are some people, I, so there are some like people I know or bands I know at a certain age who have unrealistic expectations mm. and that ruins music for them. Mm. You know, like, like after a certain point, like you got to, you got to create art for the sake of creating art if you actually want to do it well and you actually want to feel fulfilled, you know? And there are a lot of fucking really talented people who go through their lives creating that, that don't get the thing, yeah. you know? So it, it's such a fine line and, it, and it's a strange balance, but some of us just aren't company men, you know? And it's, I was talking with this somebody the other day, it's like, you know, I'm in a strange transition right now. I have family. None of the things I'm doing are really fucking money makers, you know, like something like that. Um, but I'm talking to someone the other day and we're like, you know what? We didn't sign up for the gold watch, mm. you know, like we're not company men, you know, you needed to give up a part of yourself to get that security and to get that regularity. You need to give up some of your personal freedom, give up some of your artisticness, and you need to kind of go into the thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like people got to take care of their lives. They got to take mm. care of their families, like no judgment, you know, but like some people are, are going to die on the cross, as you said before about the four tops. So <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 yeah. 